0: Hey, 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 Dan, hey, hey, Dan, hey, 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 Dan.
1: Hey, Paul, hey, Paul, what?
0: What what do you call a wizard who walks everywhere on bare feet, has poor bone density, and really bad breath? Nah, I don't know. A super calloused, fragile mystic, hexed by halitosis, get it? Super calloused, fragile mystic, hexed by halitosis, (laughs) Woo! Welcome to Therapists in Motion Podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy.
1: Welcome back to Therapists in Motion Podcast. After that stunningly fantastic joke that Paul gave us, we are back to discuss the fourth component of our ankle treatment approach and Paul's CFS of Certified Foot Specialist. So, as we left off on the third episode, we talked a lot about ankle dorsiflexion and treatments of taylor cruel joint, sub-Taylor joint, and distal fibula. And we got to the point where we were ready to start talking about midfoot and first array and then some neuro and and exercise ideas, but we just ran out of time due to a lot of different things. So... Let's kind of do a quick recap of your treatment approach with the, the where you typically go in the order that you go. Just as a quick recap, I'll talk about mine, and then let's dig, dig deep and dive deep into midfoot and first ray.
0: Sounds like a plan. So again, as we do differ a bit, just you know, pointing out that it's not necessary to start at any one place, but for the most part, um, I like to start talo cruel, uh, clean that up, and then I will move to rear foot. Uh, kind of the remainder of the rear foot area so calcaneus subtalar all that good jazz um, if i feel like i'm doing relatively well there i will move over towards fibula that's both the distal and the proximal components as well as the midfoot and then out to the uh, forefoot so i kind of start central to my area and expand and when i when i say well i don't mean like I'm 100% clean in one area, but when I feel like I'm starting to make some efficient gains, I'm going to start spreading my search saying, all right, who's the next person in the line who has to help out so that everyone's doing their part and all the buddies are happy to go.
1: And then I differ a little bit where I typically start rear foot and I'll go... True subtalar joint, both distraction, eversion, inversion, shear. Then I will move to taylor cruel joint proper, and then I move out to distal fibula, um, as Paul and, and the Institute of Physical Art have taught me a lot of treatment techniques to address the fibular mechanics. Then, just like Paul, then I will go midfoot down to forefoot slash first ray. So, Paul, let's first start with your approach to addressing the midfoot and kind of how you think about what the midfoot needs to do in in gait to assist with being able to load and then unload.
0: Definitely. So, to keep things in a, a very basic and simple capacity, you know, as we're initially contacting the ground, we want to have a relatively rigid foot. We're in that supinated position. As we move through gate, we're going to go into that pronated position. So we have a more mobile or flexible foot to go over whatever surface we have on. And then we're going to go into resupinate to create that rivet, rivet, sorry, rigid lever uh, to assist with the push-off. So what I'm interested in in particular is seeing, can I get that ability to move into that kind of pronated position and back out of that pronated position? I've been thinking what that is. That's not like the bones are just moving purely from a Superior to inferior position or an anterior to posterior depending on how you want to define this. There's a splaying that's happening there. There's a, a flattening in a, a space that's increasing through the area. Like it's a half circle or half dome. Because again, we're thinking about that supinated foot with an arch to it coming down in a slow and controlled manner. And My biggest thing here is I don't want people to jump to any assumptions based on what the foot looks like at rest. So something that I have seen frequently is an individual stands at rest and they have a quote unquote flat foot. And so you just assume that because they have a flat foot and you look and you have like an avicular drop going, the entire midfoot is suddenly hypermobile. There are plenty of people that have hypomobility through cuneiform through other areas. and What happens is they make up the majority of the motion they're able to achieve through the navicula and through that medial aspect, so they end up with a dropped navicula and end up with some pronated position, but the problem is the entire foot's not doing its part, so you have post-tib working its butt off trying to hold the navicula as it's trying to move more than the rest of the foot. Again, there are basics that fit, so if you have a relatively rigid foot that's high, you might need some mobility. If you have an overly pronated foot, you might want to check for stability, but don't assume because you saw one thing, it means all of the structures will follow suit.
1: I think that's a huge component for our, our listeners to really conceptualize because so much in the literature will talk about what you just said, a, a pez cavus or a pez planus foot, right? And while there is some legitimacy to that, they are really only looking at that in a static position, right? So what Paul's really alluding to here about that splay is y- – It's it's more than just the navicular moving, right? You really should have your cuneiforms, your calcaneal cuboid joint. You should have a nice fluid motion happening across all of those joint complexes, not just an excessive fall or drop of that navicular, which then is going to put a ton of stress through that posterior tib.
0: I I can think of multiple cases where I've had an individual that doesn't have like a full-blown nasty posterior uh, tibial tendonitis, but they are developing. They have tenderness through the post tib. The tendon is, is tender. They're definitely following that suit. And you look at their foot and they definitely have an avicular drop. And I'll check elsewhere and I don't feel like the entire midfoot is moving or splaying the way I want. And I will do nothing more than mobilize the midfoot and they will have a good pain reduction. Then it's just a matter of re-educating motion and getting it to happen without my hands doing it, but getting them then be able to control it with their weight. But again, just kind of reemphasize the importance of don't jump to conclusions and look at what the actual function is uh, to help that person in front of you.
1: So let's go back to then to that patient that you found that, that had that, and you were able to catch them before it's that full blown, you know, posterior Tibial tendinosis that's chronic in nature, and they may be working with a foot ankle orthopedist or a podiatrist who's on the verge of of doing a, a significant intervention. You know, so you're catching them a, a earlier than that need, right? Can you talk to me about some of the approaches you take or what you did with that individual to assist with improving that midfoot mobility?
0: Yeah, so obviously challenging. I wish we could do something visually here, but what I wanted to do for them is say, okay. I'm looking at this foot and the navicula is moving more than I want it to. And particularly some of like the lateral uh, cuneiform is not. So I had them in a, they were not weight bearing, but their foot was down on the table. So they were a hook lying position with their foot down. So kind of in a position of relative rest there. So partially plantar flex position. And I took one hand and stabilized the navicula. So I was hooking and holding the navicula up. Because as I mobilize, I'm going to work through the entire midfoot to get it to move. So I created kind of a splaying force working across this. It. So it wasn't just a straight press down. I was trying to actually get things to spray, splay and spread out. As I was doing that though, what I know in my head is, well, the, the body likes to take the path of least resistance and the current path of least resistance is the navicula. So I don't want to perpetuate the same movement cycle they're already in. So I stabilize the navicula up, I work on the splaying out elsewhere, then as I felt like that improved, I started propping the foot into different degrees of dorsiflexion to make sure it could actually move all the way through. Again, where am I most interested in this In and what is the foot's position and gait? So I want to think, well, I'm in that you know, kind of mid stance category and what's happening here, so I want to replicate that with my movement and my mobilization so I'm teaching the body and giving the body the efficient movement it needs in the actual position it's going to be in, then I can move to the re-educational phase.
1: Yeah. So that that's that's a great technique utilizing a half foam roller. It's relatively comfortable for the patient to be in. It's relatively easy for us as the treating therapist to be able to perform that mobilization. It takes a little bit of finger strength to be able to honestly truly block that navicular from, from falling in during that mobilization. But I also want our therapists to think about where else can I and how else can I perform that mobilization. You can do it in a half where the patient's in a half kneeling, and you can use your Freddy wedges to help with that. You can use that if you have the luxury of a true stretch where you can pre-position their rear foot based on the phase of gait you're interested in, and/or in the phase of gait where you see the greatest problematic or stresses occurring, where you can pre-position their their rear foot. Still block that navicula and like I said, maybe use a a rolled up towel or a freddy wedge or a a, a thick ball of tape if you don't have the finger strength. And then you can really work on almost locking your thenar eminence over first, second, and third cuneiform and really thinking about like a, a half moon type path that you're going to follow, you know, down and down and in towards kind of that, that first MTP joint for lack of a better direction. And that's just a phenomenal mobilization that you can garner so much early and quick mobility going, kind of going back to the last pod where we talked about how long do you spend on that structure by utilizing pre-positions and putting the rest of the body in the position that you want, you might be able to do that in 15 to 30 seconds as opposed to having to spend three to five minutes.
0: And you bring, bring up a great point. I mean, everything I was kind of talking was kind of basic and static. You can do this dynamically for sure. You know, Dan talked about using using wedges, using tiles, using things to support the motion. You can have the person drive through in a half kneeling position, moving back and forth in and out of varying degrees of dorsiflexion. You can have them stand. And do like a step-through pattern back and forth, just working on getting that foot to move. And that can be very beneficial because, one, it's going to better replicate gait and, and whatever activity else you might be trying to achieve. Two, as he said, maybe you don't have some of the hand and finger strength for this. Let the individual move and walk over and let their body weight assist. And you can support with a wedge, with a towel, with your hand, with anything. The so it doesn't drop. And you facilitate some extra motion out of the areas you want to attack letting the person help you be successful by driving this mobilization with an actual active movement by the patient.
1: Yeah. And that adding that active mo- movement in is huge. And, and think about what are my different stepping patterns that Paul alluded to if they're, if they're stepping through, are they going to st- step straight anterior? Are they going to step anterior and lateral? Are they going to step anterior and medial? Are you going to add in a rotational force, right? And, and play with all of those different stepping patterns to assist that, that, gravity, ground, reaction, force, mass, and momentum to help your mobilization so that you don't have to force it all with your hands. I think that's one thing that you and I have both kind of figured out over our professional career and journey is we don't have to muscle everything like we did early in our career. And that's not really sustainable. We are now utilizing additional, for lack of a better word, drivers to be able to assist with those mobilizations to take some pressure and some stress off of our hands. And then guess what? Now you gradually take your hands away, the patient continues to perform that stepping pattern, and now you're getting into that component of dyna- dynamic neuromuscular reeducation, education which is so resounding. The evidence is, is, is over the top supporting that component.
0: I love that. So I have a question for you then, Dan. You know, let's just go ahead and say we, we've cleared up the, the rear foot, we've cleared up the midfoot, things are doing pretty well. So we have all the structures that we need for appropriate dorsiflexion proper. Are we done?
1: No, 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 we are not. We are not done by any means. There is this lovely thing called the first MTP joint that oftentimes is neglected, right? Where people think, oh, you know, passively they need 70 degrees of passive extension. Oh, okay, great. Well, what needs to happen to really truly get your... Great toe into extension, you need to have distal first ray plantar flexion. If you don't have distal first ray plantar flexion, one, you can start to create traction across that plantar nerve, which could create a little bit of a sesmoiditis. Um, it could cause a little bit of numbness and tingling. You know, to channel intergen Lee. Uh, she would also talk about that if, if you're going to give a little bit of traction, you also need to plantar flex that distal first ray to avoid true traction through that nerve and causing a plantar nerve issue. But I often watch people from a distance, watch students, um, and, and they're like, oh, I'm working on great tail extension. And all that they're doing is working on the, the phalanx component, not the metatarsal that connects into the phalanx. Um, So anything that I missed that you also look at from a treatment approach on that?
0: No, I just want to reiterate what you said and how important it is, because the truth is I can think of many times when I did exactly what you said. I was just working on what I've been taught. You know, I'm doing AP mobs and PA mobs and I'm working on, um, you know, different moves and spin and all the glides and rolls through that actual joint for great toe extension. And all the while, I'm not letting the first metatarsal actually go into a plantar flex position. So the trouble is I'm just trying to jamming things back and to actually get the motion as Dan said you need plantar flexion of that first ray of that first metatarsal so the joint can actually do what it is designed to do otherwise you're just going to kind of jam bony ridge together and never actually maximize the amount of motion you're getting when I started working on getting that first ray to plantar flex in conjunction with the great toe extension It was so much more successful so, so easily. And to kind of just add more to this, I don't want people to think this is like only someone who has a actual toe issue. The foot gets really rigid really quickly when mechanics aren't what we want them to be. So if we have someone that has a significant loss of dorsiflexion, whether it's post-surgical, post-injury, post-immobilization, boot, or just wear and tear of time, they've often not moved appropriately for a while and they'll start to lose some motion. The foot will start to become a good amount of rigidity to it that it doesn't just sometimes magically disappear. It doesn't take a long time to clean it up, but you do need to give it some love to actually help it move. Then you'll get much better benefit. Otherwise, dorsiflexion might look great in their actual weight-bearing stance. If they can't get up on their big toe, their heel is going to pop up before they ever max dorsiflexion. You're still going to be running into some of the same stress issues you had previously.
1: Yeah, I think that's a huge component right there because anytime somebody's spent in immobility, whether that was due to doctor recommendations of being a period of non-weight bearing, they're in a boot, they're in a cast. You know, we're going to channel inner Judy Gale who always said, you have to address the first ray. You have to address the first ray after any point of immobilization through the lower leg. And, you know, perfect example, I had an individual on Monday after a trimalleolar fracture and I spent... 10 to 15 minutes working on nothing but midfoot and great toe. And all of a sudden, her standing and walking posture was so much more upright and didn't have that compensatory posterior hip hinge or forward trunk lean just after working on midfoot and first ray.
0: And how about this one? I'm seeing much less of this issue now, but Dan and I have lived through it and there's still plenty of patients that come in where they had foot problems and they were at the time in which the prescription was get a super rigid shoe and put a super supportive orthotic in said super rigid shoe, keeping the person in a lateral weight-bearing, overly arched position. That's not going to let you actually even load through your big toe and get extension through your big toe. So again, I don't see that issue happen very frequently anymore. That doesn't mean there aren't plenty of patients walking around out there that are – had foot issues, had this, that did help them at that time at the expense of future issues, but help them then they're going to start developing problems and we have to talk them out of the shoe, which is particularly challenging because that was kind of their savior <laughs> from right. before.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point, especially if they had a anything more proximal issue, whether it was a knee issue or hip sh- issue and that, that shoe was what took that away and now it's they've robbed Peter to pay Paul. Mm-hmm. So I have another question that I want to ask you. So, you know, we've talked about treating basically the joint structures, right? Rear foot, cruel, distal fib, midfoot, first ray. What about any of the associated soft tissues that you've found are often forgotten or not thoroughly addressed that again can be one of those things before we get into talk about some some functional retraining that are 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 pivotal points for our therapists to think about
0: definitely so i mean calf tightness is a common issue for a lot of people
1: is that a joke at me because i have really small calves of course okay
0: good So, I mean, calf tension, we see lots of people with calf tension. We also see lots of people, especially with our our highly seated lifestyles many people have that have back issues and neural tension through their system that then causes you to have calf tightness because of the general neural tension. So, without going too far down that rabbit hole… We want to make sure, obviously, they have good gastroc soleus motion because, well, that attaches with the Achilles to go all the way through to calcaneus to go the fascial connection to the plantar fascia, etc. Assuming they don't have a significant neural tension or something else restricting, I do see people that tend to just think about how does the gastroc stretch and how does the Achilles stretch and move and neglect to look at some of the other motions that occur back there. I mean, think about a tight calf. It pulls you into an inverted position of the heel. So, are you allowing then the calf doesn't pull in a perfectly straight line? Are you working on moving it to get it to glide towards a more medial and more lateral aspect? Is the glide still available there? Because it has to happen. And people with like a Hagland's deformity, we're getting significant rubbing and friction back to like that posterior uh, malleolus. Well, if they're rubbing and frictioning and inflaming, what can happen? the tendonous sheath can become adhered, or if not like completely adhered, it's going to have a harder time moving through. What does that mean? Well, it's going to be harder to get the calf to stretch or the body's going to recognize, whoa, this isn't moving well. I don't like this and kind of guard and protect out of fear of potential injury. So don't just think like, oh, I'm going to stretch the calf and drain needle the calf and do this to the calf appreciate the achilles it can play a big role because of its motion and again as i did say tendinous sheath previously there is some slide and glide and like a superior inferior capacity over that as well so we're appreciating the fascial system making sure the muscles and the fascia can move and glide in more than just an extended position but in all directions in motion because they are touching other structures that can then limit their ability to function
1: yeah, that Achilles sheath mobilization is something, you know, again, credit to Dynamic Foot Ankle and, and Paul for pulling that back out of the anatomy book and looking at that to say, look, hey, Dan, think about this, you know, especially with, you know, looking at the anatomy of where that calf comes and it attaches and, and its predisposition of where it wants to go. And are we mobilizing it in 3D? And are we allowing that that true Achilles tendon to glide within that sheath independently. I think we, we're good at thinking about that in the neural system, making sure that we have good neural mobility. But I think sometimes we, we forget that on the true musculoskeletal side of, of, a, of a tendon gliding within its sheath.
0: And I do – I also want to give a little bit of love to one other soft tissue structure that I have to admit – I probably haven't given it given it enough attention until talking with Brett Fisher recently, which is the intrinsics of the foot. So I remember in school when you go through and you do like the marble pickup and the other types of typical intrinsic exercises, and I get out and I'm like, I don't see a benefit in this. Well, the problem is I might do it for like a, you know, pana fasciitis or some of the other typical textbook or research-based things it's driven for neglecting what we just talked about. It's not uncommon for a foot to have been immobilized for a while in a boot, in something else, to have been not functioning appropriately. What happens when it doesn't function or move appropriately? Muscles atrophy pretty quickly or lose strength and firing. So if you have weaker intrinsics and you can't help stabilize, it's going to make it quite a challenge for the foot to move because the foot's going to recognize lack of strength and be Unsure, it's willing to let you go where you need to go out of fear of. Can I control this motion? Um, And I did a lot of proprioceptive stability balance. We're going to talk about some of those in a minute, but I do just want to give a little bit of intrinsic love out there because Brett Fisher did remind me of this importance and show Dan and I uh, a couple instances where it's been it's been a pretty big game changer for him. So little love to the marbles out in the world there. Little marble pickup, you know. Not saying that's the right thing for everyone, but do appreciate that those structures do have an importance.
1: Yeah, and, and take that marble pickup to the next level, which is well, let's do it over an unstable surface such as a half foam roller. Let's do it over a stable sur- surface such as you know repetitive four inch boxes put together, and they're doing a, a lateral walk on their toes, uh, barefoot, or a crossover pattern, you know, or a karaoke pattern, and and the like Paul said, the changes that he's seen in his athletes and their ability to perform—it—it it was one of those that was just kind of mind blowing for both of us, and, and that we had often, you know, and I'll—I'll I'll say it out loud—that I—I'd I'd, quite honestly missed. Um, you know, we we talk so much about oh, let's strengthen the quads and the hamstrings and the calf and the glutes and the core, but we neglect the intrinsics of the foot when they've had a known ankle injury or ankle dysfunction
0: it's almost like everything serves a purpose you know and it, it's really easy to become pigeonholed into certain treatment uh, ideas and philosophies especially things that are really successful and neglect some important specific structures but i'm still waiting to find the structure that is completely worthless other than viscera i know there's a bunch of you out there thinking it don't say it <laughs> i'm just gonna move on from that
1: the yes
0: yes <laughs> So, but you work really nicely into the next thing, Dan. So you talked about like taking the marble pick up to the next step, you know, getting that component where you're really looking at controlling the arch of the foot through full bearing, where you're having that forefoot contact only through foam morals and different actions. So let's talk about the retraining component because one thing I think both of us have found over time is that our manual therapy can be very effective, but to get it to Go to the next level or more importantly, to get it to actually maintain the benefits for a prolonged period of time, we have to provide neuromuscular reeducation to the area and the foot is no different. In fact, the foot might be one of the most important regions uh, just because it is such a significant weight-bearing structure with a lot of mobility and motion considering literally the weight of the basically entire body is sitting upon it. So Dan, where do you like to go when you're trying to re-educate the foot?
1: Yeah, so there, that that's a great question. I think that's something I still am working on my clinical evolution on. Uh, there, there's a few things that, again, Brett's exposed us to uh, that have been really beneficial for both you and I individually, in our own, uh, you know, physical issues, plus seeing some dramatic transformations in our patients, and the product I'm about to drop—no, I am not being reimbursed by in any way, shape, or form. Although I wouldn't complain about it if I was—is uh, the Mobo board, and this is something that is basically a cutout for your fourth, second through fifth toe. And the rest of your foot complex is weight bearing across it. And it's, it's a glorified but phenomenal balance board. I, I cannot begin to count how many patients I have put on there with then different drivers and a single leg balance, maybe with a handheld assist. That has just seen significant improvement in their function and carryover from session to session to session. That is a, that is a product that is well worth your seventy to eighty dollars in your clinic, uh, or for you to personally buy because it it is just phenomenal. And it, it while it is barefoot, there is still so much carryover, assuming that they're not in the dramatically long wrong footwear, right? Which I, I think again, that can be something that's easily pointed out where they're like, man, I feel phenomenal now when I'm barefoot and I go back in my shoe and my symptoms return. No, mm-hmm. well, that might be a relatively easy question for me to say, well, then does that mean that we really need to truly evaluate your footwear and let's do a series of tests with you barefoot with you in your shoe, with you in your shoe and your orthotic and really evaluate which one of those gives us and yields the best
0: results. It's funny you mentioned the mobile board. And again, also not sponsored by them. Um, but my wife and I, so in case we have like a first time listener doesn't know, my wife's also a therapist. P.S. Welcome. It kind of became our running joke. Like, oh, your patient's headaches haven't gone away. They probably need the mobile board. Like, we did it ourselves. We <laughs> bought one ourselves. We started using it. I'm like, this actually helps like every patient, I swear, that we're having a hard time with. So the why behind this. And one of the things we've found uh, frequently is people have a really hard time being able to actually load the base of their great toe. So being able to actually get their weight back over that medial aspect with that resupination motion happening for them. They might have never pronated, they might resupinate, and they're keeping everything on that lateral weight bearing aspect. They can't get back over that great toe to get the appropriate full push off and lever. And it's a hard thing to re-educate the person to do that. But the problem is if they're not getting back over it, A number of things are going to happen. It's going to have an impact up the chain. It's going to impact muscle firing ability. It's going to significantly impact your ability to achieve the dorsiflexion you've just been trying to provide this patient. You know, you could have a patient with the world's most efficient and perfectly clean open chain or just joint assessment motion for mid, rear, and forefoot. The problem is if they haven't learned how to actually put their weight back over the big toe, they're going to stay in a lateral weight bearing position. Which, if we know what dorsiflexion end range needs, it needs eversion. And if you're thinking in your head that, hmm, Paul, that's not eversion, you're right. Unless your knee goes into a really interesting driver, then I'm pretty terrified for the success of your patient elsewhere. And I have found over and over that patients have a hard time getting that weight, to that big toe, and even really being able to know what it feels like. And I'll put my hand underneath and try to cue them. We put a soft block down or a towel and get them to actually try to put weight through it because it is a huge deficit and they can't figure it out. We put them like on the mobile board. So like Dan said, there's that cutout where the toes can't stabilize and only the big toe can actually stabilize and they can get a use to what that actually feels like and then translate it out to other activities. So. Even if you don't want to go out and purchase one right now, I highly, highly recommend look at your patient's ability to bear weight through that base of the great toe. That is extremely important and an often missed piece to where the mechanics of movement might be there. But if they can't get their foot to bear weight in an appropriate capacity, it's, again, just going to make it so that mechanics might be present, but they can't actually utilize it.
1: Yeah, if you don't want to go spend the 80 bucks, another great cheap way to, to do this is is – utilize a golf tee and the patient will stand and the golf tee is under their first MTP joint. And all that you do is try and pull it out and they've got to make sure that they keep that their weight on that first MTP joint to ensure that they are loading appropriately, like Paul just alluded to. And then you cannot pull out that golf tee. I don't know how many times I've seen, you know, well, Brett's talked about it, Brian Schulte's talk about using that translating to working with golfers where they use that just little internal uh, external cue really so that they feel the internal feedback of loading through their first MTP joint because they can feel the golf tee underneath their joint.
0: Just to kind of take this a step further and tie it uh, to more things but um tied to more things across the body um i can think of a specific patient that was having a lot of si pain i think it was even right si pain your typical like pain right back at psis just inferior to that so i did a vertical compression test so pushing down on their shoulders and feeling what what happened with it and it reproduced their pain right at the right psis and as i'm feeling their load like i feel like i couldn't translate through their entire body and, like it was stopping at the sacral vicinity And if I really push down past the breaking point, patient's like, yeah, I really feel that coming down through my heels, through the posterior aspect of their foot. And what we did is I looked and I checked before and the foot had no limitations. But as I'm watching the weight bearing across the foot kind of feeling, he was not able and wasn't comfortable loading across his great toe. And so I got him to kind of find that and feel that. Got him to see where that was. Got him to actually shift his weight a little bit more anteriorly. Because just a simple shift wasn't working. He was staying too far posterior with that entire kind of block of the lower um, components for the trunk then. Got him to shift a little bit forward. Got him to stack up appropriately. Got him to be able to put weight through that great toe. And guess what? Next vertical compression test? Strong and no pain in any capacity. He used to tell me that he couldn't stand for more than 10 minutes without – not significant, but pain that started limiting his standing tolerance – had him think about that at home as exercise. He, um, he used a, a towel to kind of look at a smash and he had a half foam roll as well to work on some things. And guess who texted me the next day that he stood for an hour without pain? That patient. That patient. So just simple things that again, there wasn't like a big ankle foot issue. There was nothing screaming in my face that was a problem. I looked at motion, but when it came to the full posture and the full transmission of forces through the body, that's where the hiccup was. So you do need to re-educate and train that or it can have an impact on obviously the foot and a lot of other things as well.
1: So in the interest of time, let's talk about one more big hitter each that we look at for neuro re-ed, whether it's for midfoot, forefoot, or anything foot related so ankle dorsiflexion closed chain ankle dorsiflexion you know muscle recruitment like give me your one solid go-to exercise that you're just like you know what this is something that is just gold
0: and it's tough i mean there it depends so much on the different patient but i i think the one thing i give darn near everyone this is probably a cheat easy out but a single leg stance where then I'm driving the contralateral at a lower extremity or upper extremities in every position you can possibly imagine. Uh, and why? Because what I want to do is I want to be able to get the foot to stabilize and support weight, wherever that weight shift may be. So my thought is if I now have a singular base of support, I want it to get used to being the support when the center of mass is anterior medial to it, posterior medial to it, anterior lateral to it, et cetera. I want it to be used to working with a more frontal plane force, a more sagittal plane force, a more transverse plane force. So working through challenging the foot to stabilize in every different position and shifting weight all around, just a static place first, and then doing different body positions, more dynamic, I find helpful. But that's just kind of my, everyone gets it just because I feel like everyone needs to make sure they can deal with at least have been exposed to any force that might come across in a simplistic manner.
1: Are you pre-positioning them in any amount of dorsiflexion, like on a slant board, or are you just doing it uh, on static ground, whatever, how they're recruiting to, to maintain their balance?
0: I will start with just a static ground and a relatively neutral position, you know, almost not like a locked extension knee, but a relatively straight knee with that slight flexion. Once I feel like they have success, I'll build from there. That might be different knee positions, because again, the foot has a huge component to the knee. So it might be a knee pain that's driving a lot of my treatment and I'm going to go through the varying knee positions. I might vary surfaces. I might vary angles and I'll build from their success, but I'll start simple and then, uh, move from there.
1: So I would have to say there's, I'll, there's probably two I go to kind of like what Paul just alluded to, but I typically do that on the slant board where I'm going to get a little bit of gastroxoleus and Achilles, uh, a stretch and load where sometimes I'll do, um, a partial single leg balance where I'll put their other foot balancing on the top of the slant board and just drive their pelvis or their arms, or I will do a full leg swing to, to create that really three-dimensional mobility and stability through that gastroc complex. The second one is, and there's going to be some people I think they're going to say, why would you ever do this? Because this, this should never happen. There's a functional step down where I want their knee to go over their toe. And there's there, assuming that they don't have any femoral issues, there's a significant reason that they need to retrain that end range dorsiflexion on a single leg functional step down. One, because you're going to see that anytime you encounter stairs, which isn't the most common thing here in Arizona, but in the rest of the United States, it's very common. Two, it really helps to get that load through their entire system and they get that anterior translation of their tibia over their fixed rear foot. The hardest part there though is with that functional step down is I don't usually do anything to allow for what's happening at the great toe and first MTP extension. So that's still something I'm I'm trying to play with and how I can figure that out to, to allow the patient to be successful without completely destroying other structures in their system. But oftentimes after I focus on that, functional step down of allowing their knee to go over their toe, I see greater carryover from session to session of maintaining the range of motion that we have gained throughout the session.
0: I love it. Well, I think we finally have our conclusion of our four-part ankle dorsiflexion series. Now
1: they have their certified foot specialist? Now they are
0: certified and good to go. I mean, the, the thing is, you know, this is probably one of our longer series for a singular body part, but there's a reason for that not just because there's a lot of complexity here, but because it plays a role in so many different diagnoses. And I can't time and times I end up telling people, check the foot, check the foot, check the, did you check the foot? Did you check the foot? Um, It's the first thing that hits the ground. It's the thing that's going to be the first piece of does force transmission occur the way we need it to, or is it already interrupted at step one of a very long process? So hopefully you've all learned something from this. Hopefully maybe you have some questions that come up from this. If you do, you know how to find us, therapists in motion at spoonerpt.com. Otherwise, thank you so much for listening. Talk to you next time.